Thank you for joining Mind Your Brain. Our mission of this podcast and our foundation is to improve the quality of life for those affected by brain injury. We are devoted to giving you help and hope and tools and tips so you can achieve the highest recovery possible from a brain injury. We're not satisfied with just good enough. Today, we're going to talk about disability insurance, a resource for brain injury survivors if their injuries limit their ability to go back to work or need long-term care. My name is Candace Gant. I'm a brain injury survivor and founder of Mind Your Brain at Penn Medicine Conferences and the director, executive director of the Mind Your Brain Foundation. I'm also proud to be on the board of the Brain Injury Association of Pennsylvania and the co-chair of the Pennsylvania Brain Injury Coalition. Today, my guest is Ethan Abramowitz. He is a nationally recognized disability insurance attorney and a partner at Seltzer and Associates. He focuses his practice on the representation of disabled physicians, dentists, and other highly skilled professionals with individual and group disability insurance products. He assists his clients through all phases of the disability insurance claims process from pre-claim analysis through litigation. In addition to representing his clients, Mr. Abramowitz frequently writes and presents on the importance of disability insurance and common issues that arise from the claims process. So Ethan, thank you so much for joining Mind Your Brain today. Thank you for having me, it's a pleasure. And I'm excited to uncover some of the mysteries and perhaps confusion of disability insurance with you. So our listeners, I'm sure would, would benefit from a better understanding. Could you start with a brief overview of disability insurance policies, products, private policies versus the ones that are provided by an employer and perhaps as a part of their benefits plan? Absolutely. So it's a great question. It's a great topic. And I always say this is a two pitcher of coffee conversation because there's a lot of nuance and minutia when you're talking about any insurance product. But disability insurance in general covers a spectrum of different products that are designed to ensure income and ability to earn and generate an income by working in their occupation. And what I mean by that is if someone suffers, typically we see the language, if someone suffers an injury or sickness that prevents them from working in their own occupation or limits their ability to work in their own occupation, the policy should, again, depending on what the coverage provides, provide a total disability benefit if they can't do their occupation or a partial disability benefit, a, a proportionate benefit if they're prevented from doing some of the duties they were able to do pre-disability or are forced to cut back on their hours. So they're reducing their work activity and suffering a loss of income because of that. So it's directly designed, and these products are marketed to say, Ethan, if you are an attorney and you suffer a traumatic brain injury and are forced to cut back or stop, we're going to protect your income stream. So unlike life insurance or car insurance that protect one's life and ability to live and provide a financial benefit, this specifically focuses on protecting one's income and providing financial security while someone is dealing with, in this situation, traumatic brain injury. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, so what is the difference then between disability insurance and social security disability? This is where I get a little fuzzy and confused. Before I jump to that, I just want to make one point is that when we talk about individual disability insurance, Mm -hmm. talking about products that people go out and buy on their own from a financial advisor or broker, and they own that product and follows them and they go through and, and purchase the different tiers of coverage that suit their needs. Mm-hmm. And it stays with them as long as they pay the premiums and keep the policy. Of course, it follows them throughout their life. Where a group or an employer-sponsored plan, a long-term disability or short-term disability plan, is owned by the employer. And the employee rarely has a say in what level of coverage they have. And those policies typically have other um, limitations and language that, that are less favorable to the individual policies. But someone can have both. You can have a, an individual policy that you have on your own and an employer-sponsored program a plan, and they work together. Um, and again, they should have similar definitions that focus on one's occupation. When we talk about social security disability, it's a great segue, is that this is a government-sponsored benefit program. It's administered by the Social Security Administration, and it focuses on a much stricter um, definition. That looks at not at one's own occupation, and ability to work in their, in their field, but their ability to work in any gainful occupation based on their education, training, and experience. So if I'm an ER physician and I suffer a traumatic brain injury, I may have the capacity, I may no longer have the capacity to work in the emergency room, but I can go stay on maybe as a medical director or teach biology at high school, do something else that brings meaning and joy and some additional income into the house without having my benefit impacted where social security will look at whether or not that person can do any gainful activity. And there's normally an income threshold of about $1,000 a month. It varies year to year, but it's, it's a much stricter definition. And you can have situations where someone is totally disabled from any gainful occupation, where they do meet the definition under the individual disability policy and group disability policy, as well as social security. The only caveat to this, and this is where I say these products get really confusing, where in the long-term or group, the the employer-sponsored disability plans that someone may have, there's normally language in there that allows that company to reduce that monthly benefit by social security benefit. And that's why I said earlier that those products are typically less favorable than the individual policy. But if someone does have both individual the long-term disability and social security, it won't typically affect the individual disability product. So they can't have all three benefits working at some, at, in conjunction. And then social security also provides some other additional nuanced benefits um, as well. Thank you, maybe we'll touch on that in a minute. And how would I know if I've got this insurance coverage through, uh, through my benefits package? Would I know that in advance or is it just packaged in, in some of the benefits that I have and we might not even know we had it? It's a great question. A lot of the clients I work with oftentimes don't realize they have it. So the, the first step is, again, when someone starts working with, with a new company, they get a whole you know, 200, 300 page booklet that says their health, dental, debt, everything is in there. Mm-hmm. And I've yet to meet a client that's actually gone through that and, and read it in detail. So I think the first step someone can do is, is reach out to their, their HR rep if they're working for a large corporation or if they're working for a smaller company, just ask someone um, in management, 
hey, do we have short-term and long-term disability? Is that something that was provided by the company? Um, and then it's worthwhile to sit down with someone to, to get an understanding of what that policy actually provides and what the definitions of coverage are and what that benefit is. Um, like I said, th these, these are tricky policies. There's a lot of information in there and understanding what your coverage is important because if you're not suffering from a medical condition and you're in good health, um, you do have the ability to potentially go out and buy a, an individual policy to supplement any deficiencies. And again, I'm not in sales. That's not what I do. I don't market and sell these products. Mm -hmm. I'm on the back end when someone needs to file a claim and dealing with the horror stories of people being underinsured. And those are really gut-wrenching stories. I'll bet they are. I'm sure that's tough to, to, uh, to, to feel the heartbreak for some yeah. of the tragedies that have happened. And, and so tell me, if my accident happened last year, the year before, and I didn't recognize, and now we're just learning that maybe I have some potential income support through a, a, through a product that was in our package, our benefits plan, is it too late to go back and to apply for it? Or is there a restriction it, on it? It really depends on the state you live in as far as the notice requirement, as well as the language in the policy. All of these policies have a reasonable notice requirement and, and, it, and it varies, but typically um, in a more liberal jurisdiction, a company must show that they were prejudiced by the delay in notice mm -hmm. in order to, to rely on that to not pay a claim. Similarly, if someone's dealing with a traumatic brain injury and has issues with cognitive function right. and don't have the, the general understanding or capacity to understand that this, this claims process and their coverage, that's mm -hmm. also a defense. Um, in more strict, pure notice jurisdictions where it, it's very favorable to the insurance company, failure to timely file or notify, not file, but notify, tell the company, hey, I'm thinking about filing a claim, send me the information, can, can jeopardize your claim. So it's important to understand, I guess, where you live, because I know this is a, a national audience, where that person lives. Um, and, and again, if it's something where it's been greater than a year talking to an attorney to understand what, what consequences may occur from, from waiting. But now's the time to start to investigate, to go back now's and take a look and see if there's any availability for, the, for that support. Absolutely. And, and one of the other issues that, that occurs, again, if you're talking about within a year, um, the, it's always about gathering the information necessary to support the claim. So for, for disability claims, we're looking at establishing someone's occupation. What were they doing at the time of disability? Mm -hmm. uh, what medical records do we have to support it? As well as what, what financial records do we have? If you're talking about a year time frame, typically th those documents are normally there. Yeah. and we can get them. But if you're looking to go five years back in time, we've been successful in doing that in certain jurisdictions. Um, but it really depends on whether or not we can gather all the information we need to put in front of the insurance company and say, here's everything in four-part harmony. Don't tell us you've been prejudiced by late notice. There's nothing missing here. Pay the claim. And more often than not, when you have that information and you're in a a non-strict notice jurisdiction, we can get the claims paid and, and they honor the policies. And that one year, we don't talk about just for a minute because oftentimes the recovery, you don't know you can't go back to work until your rehabilitation is complete. Speaking and personally, my, my father suffered a catastrophic stroke when he was 63 and he was, uh, 
he was in, in the hospital for six months, you know? So when you're dealing with a traumatic brain injury or, or other medical condition that's affecting the brain, there is a significant period of time where someone may be incapacitated or not able to address this issue. Mm-hmm. That's why I say typically, again, depending on the jurisdiction and, and the surrounding circumstances, if someone's incapacitated with, with a significant traumatic brain injury or some other condition that's affecting cognitive function, we, the likelihood of resolving a, a late notice issue is, is favorable. Perfect. And that, that leads me right into, thank you for that segue, for that introduction to this topic, and that's long-term care coverage. And do, do I have to meet a, sta- a standard to receive? So long- God, I'm sorry. Yes. No, please go right ahead. So long-term care coverage, unlike disability insurance, which looks at insuring one's earnings and income, really is there to provide an insurance benefit to help pay for care and, and treatment. And again, there's a lot of nuance and minutiae here, but primarily what these policies look to to qualify for a benefit is someone typically has to need assistance with two of six activities of daily living. And those are traditionally bathing, whether or not someone can bathe and wash themselves on their own, getting dressed, eating, continence, toileting, and transfer. And those are the key activities of daily living that, that we typically see spelled out in policies. And one of the issues that, that we often see or, or problems with these claims is that medical records often don't identify this. So medical records are there for treatment. Mm-hmm. And while if someone is you know, bed confined dealing with a traumatic brain injury in, in a hospital, it's pretty straightforward situation of where a policy like this, you know, may not need additional analysis or, or assistance. But one of the key factors that I always think is helpful is when someone is pursuing one of these claims, talk to your doctors and just ask them to verify. There's normally a claim form. And that, that's, we'll talk about, I think, the claims process in a little bit. But mm-hmm. when, when people notify a company of a long-term care claim. They typically get a, a claim statement that they need to fill out and a form for their doctors to fill out. And as we all know, the, the new world we're living in with COVID and, and limited office hours and, and the stress that our, that our medical providers are under, let alone pre-COVID, the, the difficulties we had you know, with, with managed care and how much stress doctors are under, so it takes a lot of time sometimes to get these forms filled out and back to the company. And that delays the, the company's ability to administer and pay the claim. I would say it's like a tennis match where if the ball's on our side of the net, the company's not going to do anything. The ball being information needed to move the claim. So you always have to get the company what they need as soon as possible. So the burden is always on them to keep the claim moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. And, and if I have disability benefits or long-term care insurance, let's talk about that. How do I make a claim? So the, the first step is to notify the company. Um, typically, and again, this is where things sometimes get confusing with people with individual products because they bought that policy 20 years ago and they may not have a copy of the policy. They can either contact, if that person's still in business, the, the agent or broker that sold them the policy and ask advice, they can call an attorney and, and ask advice on that, or they can pick up the phone if they do have that information and say, you know, insurance company A, I'm so-and-so, here's my policy number. 
um, I'd like to submit a claim. And then what happens is the company will then send an initial claim packet, which has uh, really a couple different forms, a claimant statement saying, you know, who you are, what's the nature of your medical condition, what's your occupation, why are you claiming disability, and a claim form for, for the doctor to fill out as well. And then after that, there's, there's a whole bunch of information that they need to gather, especially for disability claims. They're going to look for occupational documentation, confirming what the person was doing pre-disability, uh, their income to assess and analyze, um, you know, any other occupations they were engaged in that sometimes creates an issue, but to show income loss and really identify what that person does for a living and then the medical records. So it's vocational, medical, and occupational information that can take a lot of time to gather. Oh, indeed. And I'm just thinking that it's fraught with challenges for a brain injury survivor. You really have to have a strong advocate and you also have to have all this information already perhaps amassed and, and it could be, I, I'm feeling very confused just in the behalf of the brain injury survivors undertaking that collection of information. Well, it's also very challenging, I think, on families as a whole as well. Again, my, my personal experience dealing with my father's stroke is we spent six months worrying about and trying to, to figure out what his prognosis would be. Mm-hmm. And that was before he even left the hospital and then started his intensive rehab program. So when you're going through this process and, and going through the recovery process, few people really have the time or emotional stamina to deal with an insurance company that's really going to be pestering them for information. I don't mean to use pestering in a derogatory way. Mm-hmm. The company has a job to do. That they need to make sure that they're doing their review in a timely manner. So they're going to keep asking for information. Where is this? Where is this? Where is this? Yes. And unfortunately, if someone takes too long to get that information, the company's just going to close the claim. They'll reopen it once you provide it, but that just causes a lot of stress and uncertainty for people while they're trying to either get their life back in order and get some better understanding of their prognosis or their family, all the while dealing with any financial stress that's occurring from from not working. Yeah, I think you've captured it. And, and, And so let's say that you are successful in making the claim what are the next steps? Uh, is there a review process and what does that look like? And what could be the challenges they would face after the claim has been submitted? It's a great question. So for disability insurance benefits, it's a monthly benefit. So the company has the obligation to pay a benefit each month, provided that the insured is able to establish their ongoing eligibility and entitlement. So in a true truly harsh claims administration, a company could sit there and require claim forms every single month from you and your doctor to say that you're still disabled. Oh my goodness. Um, and is that possible? That's it's, probable? It's, it's, it's the exception to the rule. Typically what we see with a, a total disability claim, mm-hmm. someone's not working in their occupation at all. We submit the initial claim information, the initial information from the doctor, And then typically they request follow-up information every three to four months. After a number of years pass and the company truly feels comfortable with the claim, they may request it every six months to once a year. That's always the goal on my end is to push things to that level of of comfort with the company, that level of review. If people are still working in a reduced capacity, the example I gave with uh, with the ER physician that might be working as a medical director, they may request 
uh, claim forms more often. They may request a monthly claim form. If someone is, is partially disabled, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm a, um, the ER physician, but I'm working in a reduced capacity, but still working as an ER physician, they will request monthly documentation showing my earnings because at that point, it's a loss of income analysis the company has to do. So depending on the nature of the claim and, and what's been submitted and the coverage you have, you could be required to provide things, at least some information every month, whether it's financial or, or uh, vocational. So they should expect it to be continuing that relationship and the documentation with the insurance company throughout their disability. This is one of those insurance products or claims where, again, whether it's it's once a year or less, there, there is going to be at least annual follow-up from the company. They're going to continue their review. But again, the goal is at first, the company is going to be requesting a lot of information. The key is to get them that information, make sure that it's very well put together that any questions or concerns that they may be able to contrive because we're dealing with electronic medical records. They're there for treatment, not disability. So there might not be language about functional restrictions and limitations with respect to one's occupation, Uh, but making sure all that information's in. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once they have that, you know, making sure that another requirement in a lot of these policies, unless it's waived, is that the person continues to receive ongoing appropriate care. And that's that the company may try to make an issue of it, but that's what's dictated by the treatment provider. So if my doctor wants to see me every six months or every four months or once a year, whatever that time period is, mm-hmm. the doctor's prescribing that frequency of care. I need to comply with that. I need to show that I'm listening to my doctors and I'm doing what is medically appropriate because if I don't, and the doctor says we need to see Ethan every six months, and I don't show up for two years, the company is going to rely on that appropriate care language, say Ethan's not getting appropriate care, and therefore we're denying liability during that time period. He's not doing his part to recover. I'm not complying. Correct. Not complying. Uh, So in this world of disability insurance, it it seems quite complicated and and perhaps more so for a brain injury survivor, even their caregivers. Uh, How do do our listeners find someone to help them? Because it seems like this would be an important uh, you need an advocate and to, an important resource for them. Well, I'm always happy to, to take calls and help people. It's not something that, that I can handle directly. I work with a national um, network of, of other lawyers and, and people in this industry, whether it's social security attorneys, I don't do social security, um, but social security attorneys, long-term care, workman's comp. Um, the, the other, you know, reaching out to HR, sometimes human resources, if it's, if it's a group policy, they have some answers, they don't have all the answers. Going back and talking to the broker that sold you the policy, again, a lot of these people have an understanding of what should happen in a claims process, speaking specifically about brokers and human resources, they're normally not there going through the claims process or they have a limited experience doing that. So if, if it's something where someone has um, questions or concerns and a, a quick phone call to me or another disability attorney that really focuses on this area of law, I, I never charge for, for an initial consult or just answering general questions. I'm always happy to do that and work with people um, that are suffering from, from medical issues because it's a complicated and, and trying time. So it's, 
it's just trying to reach out, talking to someone like you who may have a, a network as well in the, in the world that you work in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the key is to find reliable people, people that actually know what they're talking about and understand these products. Because again, there, there are a lot of attorneys out there. They may focus their practice on certain things. They may do insurance law, but not have a true understanding of the nuance and minutiae requirements. And there's a difference again uh, between individual disability policies and, and the legal um, federal statutes governing ERISA, which applies to the employee benefit long-term disability policies. So really they need to have people that understand what, yes. what, what's involved with each different type of policy and, and the definitions and requirements. Yes, thank you for that, Ethan. And if I don't have insurance right now, and maybe, maybe perhaps our listeners, I know you're not in sales, but maybe you could give them some insight into this as well, is that perhaps we should. You know, we hadn't considered it. We heard this podcast and we're now we understand that perhaps our brain injury, brain injury survivors could have a reoccurrence depending on their level of ability to get back to work and back, get back to life, there might be, and as we know, the compound of brain injuries cause long-term disabilities in itself. And so my question would be, what's the right terminology if we're going to go to an insurance broker? What do we ask them for? What do we need to, have to secure the future, maybe for ourselves or for our children? So it's, it's, a, it's a, again, another two-picture coffee conversation. But in, in briefly explaining, if someone already has a traumatic brain injury, they may be precluded from getting an individual disability policy, or, or it may be issued with some sort of exclusion or limitation. But that also may depend on what the record shown, what the recovery is. Mm-hmm. So talking to a, a broker or person that, that specifically focuses their business on selling these types of policies, and you really need to, I think, interview and talk with a number of these uh, financial planners or brokers because some are more knowledgeable than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's for the individual disability products. If you are someone who already has a traumatic brain injury and you're working for an employer that has a long-term disability plan that's offered to employees, um, typically those policies have are guaranteed standard issue, meaning that all you have to do is uh, sometimes you have to opt in, sometimes you're automatically enrolled, but make sure if it's something that you have to opt into that you've opted into it. And then if you are a new employee of, of a, if it, and I always use doctors because I primarily work with doctors, but if I'm a new doctor at a hospital and I'm recovering from a, a traumatic brain injury, typically with those policies, there's a pre-existing condition provision and all that normally says is that if you've been treated for three or six months prior to the effective date of coverage, we won't cover a disability that starts within the first 12 months or two years. But once you clear that time period mm-hmm. that you've been employed there without issue, then you've got full coverage. And, and the third option, again, if you've been employed and it really depends on what's brought into that group that sometimes independently third parties come in and sell what's known as a, a guaranteed standard issue product or an enhancement product um, that again, has limited to no medical underwriting. And all you have to do is be an employee and you can opt into that coverage as well. So that, that's a separate product that, that's then brought in on top of what, what's provided. So there are options. Oh, that's good. That's great advice because I think it's worthy of our attention now that we understand the challenges, especially unemployment and underemployed or not employed, losing your employment and your livelihood. 
Well, I think it's always tough trying to get insurance if, if you whether it's life insurance or or disability if you have a a, a pre-existing medical issue. Mm-hmm. That said, that's the one good thing about the long-term disability plans and these other products that can come in the, the guaranteed standard issue plans, enhancement plans, is that if you're employed and you and you're there and you're working full time, you should be able to get into that plan. And as long as you clear that pre you, you that clear pre-existing condition language, mm-hmm. you're then fully covered unless there's some other language there. But typically, you just have to be there for a year or two without issue. And then you've got at least some coverage. That's brilliant. Thank you. That that's great advice, Ethan. I really appreciate it. This it's been a great topic to introduce to everyone. Is there anything that we've missed? Anything that we should any thoughts that we perhaps didn't cover something and you have advice of your own from your own experience that you'd like to give to our listeners? The the one thing, and we touched on it briefly, was that I think a lot of people think of total disability, they look at the inability to work in its entirety, where a lot of the claims I deal with start off as partial disability claims, where someone is reducing their work activity or cutting back on certain things due to a medical issue. And those are really tricky for people to understand and, and analyze whether or not they're entitled to a benefit, especially if it occurs over time. So I can say on my end, a lot of the claims I see and I deal with start off as a a partial claim and a a traumatic brain injury may be different where someone starts off, they're in the hospital for a period of time and then they transition into a, a, a partial claim. But understanding the partial disability component as well as the total disability component is, is, is very important. Thanks, thanks for pointing that out. That's important you, I agree. Um, and so thank you. I know this was basic information, but I think it's enough that it will trigger some action and some interest for our listeners to be protected for the future. So I thank you so much for your time and your expertise in this area to share with our listeners today. My pleasure. And thank you for, for all the hard work and good work that, that you do and your team does. Thank you. So to my listeners, please subscribe to our podcast and share it with others. There are millions of, well, let's say 5.3 million to be exact, brain injury survivors in the United States that are still struggling. Please reach out your hand and lift them up and give them this information, help them and share our website. So mindyourbrainfoundation.org with your support group, your therapist, caregivers, friends on your email list. We would We would love to lift them up and help them as well. So thank you for joining us. And here's my virtual hug. You are not invisible to us.